right, as you all are making your ways back to your seats, go ahead and turn, your, turn in your Bibles to the book of Colossians. Colossians is going to be three-quarter way to the right in your Bible in the New Testament. I didn't look up the page number in the Pew Bible. There are some Bibles underneath the, the center aisle of seats, and so if you don't have a Bible, you can grab one of those and um, just flip to the, the beginning table of contents if you want to look and see where Colossians is. We're going to be in chapter 3 today reading verses 5 through 11. For those of you who are joining us for the first time, we have been in a series in the book of Colossians, just studying it, pretty much uh, going through line by line and, and um, all of, uh, in all of the book. And so we've spent a considerable amount of time in this book and uh, have recently crossed over into chapter 3. We took a break actually over the Easter period and as we celebrated our one-year anniversary as a church and we are just getting back into the book. So you come at, a, uh, at an appropriate time. And this sermon, even if you haven't been with us, it, it pretty much will stand alone. I think you'll get something out of it. At least I got something out of it as I prepare. Ch- uh, Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 through 11. I'm going to uh, ask you to read this with me. You guys ready? Here we go. If then you have been raised, I'm sorry, I'm reading verse 1. Here you go. My, I got to put my glasses on, train my eyes. Verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices And have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. There is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. That's God's word. Let's pray. Father, we pause to say thank you. As we celebrate Memorial Day, we remember those who've paid the ultimate sacrifice of giving their life in defense of our great country. We thank you that our freedom is born through the blood and the sacrifice on the backs of those men and women who through the years have raised their hands, volunteered, and said, I'll serve my country. And some have said that to its death, and so we honor their memory today. We thank you for those who, even in our own congregation, who serve today, and we have many of those in many of the services, and we thank you for representation of the armed forces in our own congregation, and we thank you for all that they do to keep us free. We thank you for true freedom, which comes from uh, an acknowledgement of the work and the person of Jesus, his ultimate sacrifice in our place for our sin on the cross of Calvary. And we say true freedom is, is surely not free. It comes through the blood of Jesus. So today we honor the gospel as well. Lord, open our eyes and our ears to what you would have us to see, how you would have us to to be challenged, but also how you would encourage us by your word today. We pray that that we would all um, hear personally what you're saying to us as as individual believers, but God, speak to us corporately as well. We pray this in Jesus' great name. And everyone said, amen and amen. One of the metaphors that we've used as we've studied Colossians is this picture of of walking. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, perhaps you've 
had someone ask you, so, well, how is your walk going? And when we say that, we're, we're really asking you with no uncertain terms, you know, how's your devotional life? Are you reading the Bible? What are you getting out of it? What's God, the Holy Spirit, saying to you as you dive in to know God better and to, you know, to, to do what he says? How is your walk going? Paul is unfolding this idea of walk. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 10, Paul prays that the Colossians would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. He continues in Colossians chapter 2, verse 6, exhorting the church. He says, therefore, as you perceive Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him. And if you think about it, I mean, this is an appropriate metaphor to use for people who, who I mean, we use our legs all the time, right? I mean, unless you're disabled, or, or injured of some sort, uh, this idea of walking is something that should be very familiar to all of us because it's what we do to get from point A to point B. At the time of this writing in first century life, walking would have been the primary mode of transportation for all the, all the people on, on the world, unless you were a, a dignitary or a king or something and, and rode, on, rode in a chariot. So in our text today, Paul concerns himself not so much with the destination as in, where is my walk taking me? If we're a Christian, then the Bible tells us that our faith in Jesus is getting us to a destination where uh, at the end of our life is not really the end. Jesus is going to return, the second coming of Christ. He's going to resurrect the, the living and the dead. And there's an eternity to live with him forever in the new heavens and in the earth. Paul is not really suggesting this idea of, of, of the end of the walk. He's talking about the quality of your walk as you're walking it. How is your journey going to be? What will that journey look like? And he addresses the, the, the Christian walk in a series of imperatives that we'll look at both this week and we'll finish up next week as we get past uh, verse 12 and on. And so think about this. When you walk, you take one step and then you take another step, right? Unless you're like hopscotching or jump, <laughs> unless you're jumping. Um, walking really is one step after another, one foot in front of the other. And then we repeat it over and over again. And so Paul is giving us a series of steps on how to walk, how to walk as a Christian. And in the first step, he says you got to put off. That's what the first step is. Put off sin, Put off your old self, put off those things that entangle you and all those things that might have you bound. Put off your old ways of relating to the world. But then he said the next step is putting on, okay, putting on compassion, putting on uh, uh, kindness, putting on humility. We see that in verse 12 and 4. We'll talk about that next week. And so these two steps, put off, put on. What do you do after that? Repeat. Put off. Put on. That's how you walk as a Christian. That's what Paul is laying out for us in this passage. All right. So that's I don't want you to miss that. He's teaching us what our walk should be as a Christian. And the metaphor is you put off sin, all those things that are entangling you in your life, and you put on compassion and the other things of the benefits of Christ. If you put off and not put on, you're going to fall over. You got to have both of these. That's what he's he's conveying to us today through these words. 
You know, one of the, the first words we notice here in the text is the word therefore. And I've said to you several times because Paul uses that word a lot here in, in the book of Colossians. Whenever you see therefore, your teacher always told you, you got to stop and look why it's therefore. And Paul is using the word therefore as he's used it before to connect what he said before to all that he's getting ready to say. And so what has Paul already said to us? Well, I likened it last week to, to these words. He says your identity. Who you are in Christ must be foundational for you to understand what God is calling you to do. Another way that I said it is that your, your doing flows from your being. And, and this is where this, hopefully this makes sense for you. God, is call, God commands us to do a lot of things in Scripture. He does. But if you, if you take a minute and pause and actually study out how the Bible is laid out, before God tells you anything, he defines for you what your life in him looks like. He says your identity comes before your behavior. Your, what you do, what God tells when you do obey, what God tells you to do, he's already sort of called you. He's defined what your identity should look like before he... Uh, describes what, you, what he wants you to do. The Bible actually is calling us to live a supernatural life. And the gist of that life is we really can't even do what God is commanding us to do without God's help. Isn't that interesting? To do what God commands us to do, we actually need his help. You can't live your Christian life in your own strength. You do need God's help. And so Paul doesn't start this letter in, in Colossians by giving us this whole, whole list of uh, ethical imperatives of what to do. He starts by pointing us to Jesus. He says Jesus is supreme. He's preeminent. He says, secondly, that as you trust in Jesus and, and put your faith in him, then there's this spiritual reality that becomes true for you. You're in union with Christ such that his life is your life. His death is your death. You've died to your sin and all those things that used to be in your past that are not of God. But you you gain Christ's life to, to all the, the benefits that he that he was able to live as as the God man. Those are available to you. And so, in this passage, um, I want to ask and answer three questions. I want to ask and answer what, why, and how. What, why, and how. The first question is simply this. What is God commanding us to do? In these words, what is God commanding us to do? This is the structure of the passage that we're getting ready to read. Paul gives us... Three imperatives. He's going to tell us to do three things. And really, when he's telling us to give the, to do three things, he's giving us a picture, a picture of what he wants us to do. And then he's, he's going to give us an extensive list, two lists, in fact, of, of, of sins that we need to put to death. He, he's not going to um, give us an exhaustive list, but he's going to tell us some specific things that he that by the Holy Spirit that we should do to live the life that God is calling us to live. And so what is God commanding us to do? In, in, in verse 5 of the three imperatives, Paul's exhortation is to put to death what's earthly in you. Back in uh, Colossians 3, verse 2, Paul told us to seek the thing, uh, set your minds on things that are above, not the things that are on earth. 
So what he's doing here in verse five is is helping us see the things, the things that are on earth. These are the things that you should take your mind off of because they're keeping you down too low. You need to raise your eyes up a little bit. And the image is execution. I mean, what do you think? What do you think about when you hear when you hear the word execution? Right. It it means something's going to be put to death. He's telling us to put something to death. The word here has the the connotation of of making something dead, of mortifying, mortifying those things that are not of God in your life. Paul's not hoping that the Colossians will try to suppress or control their evil attitudes and actions. He's saying we can't just ignore the sin in our life and hope it goes away. Don't we do that sometimes? Lord, just just take this away from me. That that magic, the one, two, three, I'm going to snap my fingers and it's going to be gone. Paul is not encouraging the Colossians that think that life works like that. Because it doesn't. We are to treat it, our sin, as something deserving death. The second imperative or picture that Paul gives us is in verse 8. And in verse 8, Paul says, now you must put them all away. He's speaking of our sins here. Put your sin all away. And the image that he gives us is, is of refuse, of, of trash. What do you do with something that you don't want? Well, if you, um, we did a little bit of spring cleaning. Well, actually, I didn't do it. My wife did it. All right. So she put all, this, all these clothes and shoes and bags and um, some of the stuff the kids had grown out of uh, in a bag. They're by the door. and We're going to donate those. That's not what Paul's talking about. All right. We, we don't want that stuff because we've grown out of it. We have no use for it. He's talking about stuff that 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 you not only used it, but you you like put holes in it. You you soiled it. It's, it's un, untenable for those who would want to be out in public around other people. He's saying throw it away. It's like garbage. Treat your sin like garbage or refuse. It's, and, and so what he's saying here is we recognize our we got to recognize our sin for what it is, it's, it no longer holds the same value. When you throw something away, it no longer holds any value for you in your life. And then the third imperative comes in verse 9. And I would tell you that the, the actual thing that Paul commands us to do is to stop lying. But the picture that he gives us is disassociated from this idea. I'm going to explain it more as we go along. But the image here is of old clothes that have become ragged and stained with their sin. And he's saying, take this, you know, take off these stained clothes to put them, put them away and and robe yourself instead with the righteousness that Christ provides. All right. So those are the three imperatives. Those are the things that Paul is telling us to do. He doesn't stop there. He gives us two separate lists of things that sort of fills these these pictures out. And these the first list is. uh is in, in verse five. Before I get there, um, what Paul is doing, he's connecting specific sins with these images or these pictures uh, and these commands that he's he's giving us. And in verse five, you'll see that he addresses sexual type sins. In verse eight, those are verbal type sins or sins addressing really the the sin, the anger of our hearts. And in both of these, he works from the external and goes kind of toward the the inside. Not stuff that you can see, but stuff brewing on the inside of us. And I think it's important for us to pause and actually ask, why why these categories? Why sexual sin? 
why sins, the verbal sins that come out of our mouth? And I think the answer to that, just at least my answer is, Paul knows us well. He knows our culture. I would say, and this is a liberal guess, 90% of us in this room, 90% of the people that you encounter in, in you know, out there in the world that you live in struggle with sexual sin and, and verbal sins. Think about it. When you do and say things you should not do and say, what areas do they fall in? A lot of times they're in this area of sexual immorality and in of you saying something that you should not say. And once you say it, unfortunately, we can't take those back. So God knows us. He knows our struggle. I think these lists are, are helpful to us. God knows our culture. And, you know, the, God is, Paul is giving us this because, you know, he's, tr- he's trying to help us uh, see ourselves in a redemptive way. That God is not just letting us go about our lives, um, continuing in our sin, but he's helping us to see what God has called us to and the means to attain that thing which God has called us to. His redemption. So let's jump in. Verse five says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. Paul has given us similar lists in his other letters. Galatians five has a list that's very similar to this. These are some specific sins, aren't they? I mean, y'all looking at some. I mean, these that's some stuff right there. These are heavy things that. Some of us have in our lives and the message that Paul is giving us is put these to death. Puritan theologian John Owen says uh, he's he's, uh, noted to have written this. You should be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Um, If I could, I would just stand up here with with John Owen, who lived in the early 19th century and just read what John John Owen has written about the mortification of sin. Very, um, I mean, it just cuts to your heart. John, if you ever want to read, if you ever want to read more, uh, more deeply about this idea of putting your sin to death, go find John Owen and just read what he says. And I think you'll be blessed by it. John Owen says, you should be killing sin or sin will be killing you. And that means that you should have a, a not a lackadaisical approach to the things that aren't quite right in you, those things that keep you separated from God and his holiness, but that you should take an aggressive stance on sin in your life. Not just these sins, every sin. From the white lie all the way to, God forbid, the murder. Okay, we should take very seriously the sin in our life. The words here mean to, to make dead, to mortify. And this is the way that John Owen would put it. He would say to to refuse it, to starve it, to reject it. There's one other idea that this phrase here that Paul is conveying uh, expresses to us. And it's it's more than just stopping your sin. But more than that, he's talking about transforming our will. He's talking about having a new attitude and a mind. Here's Romans, what, what Paul wrote in Romans 6, 11. He says, so you also must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God. So it is, it's an exchange, really, an exchange for the life that you're living, for the life that God is offering you, empowered by the, the death and the resurrection of Jesus and the work of his spirit in the life of the believer. And then thirdly, he's he's encouraging us to have a radical shift in the very 
core of who we are from from the sin in us, to the life that Christ provides. And so Paul provides five very specific things, five very specific sins. All right. We're going to look briefly at at each one of these. And I'm going to try not to beat you all over the head. All right. So if I'm like saying too much about these, just like look at me weirdly. The first one, sexual immorality. Uh, the Greek word here is porneia. Porneia. It should sound familiar to you. Porneia is, is the, the root word that we get pornography from. Um, another way, a word that uh, conveys this idea of sexual, mora- sexual immorality or porneia is fornication. And this refers to all sexual activity outside the marriage covenant. This goes without saying. The, the testimony of Scripture is that God designed sexual activity for marriage and everything outside of the marriage covenant is considered porneia, sexual immorality. We live in a porneia culture. It's all around us. It's on TV. It's at the beach. It's at the pool. It's in a newspaper. Your neighbor's displaying it for you, even if you don't want to see it. It's all around us. You can't even escape it. And so the prohibition here is firstly that this is something that you should put to death in your own life. But the warning here is, you know, be wary of it around you as well as it sucks you in to the, you know, the, the culture at large. And when I say that, we have a pornea culture. This is really what I mean. Um, a lot of times, the, the, the way that our culture is going is, I got that feeling. You know that song? I got that feeling. When we get the feeling, we do what we want, right? There, there's no, restriction, no restrictions to what we feel like we can do. We do what we want, when we want, however we want. But the story of the Bible is that God made the world perfect and, that, and, and amidst his uh, the good of his creation, he created sex. And sex was uh, the means by which God would bring a man and a woman together in sexual intimacy. G- uh, Genesis 2.24 says, For this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother, cleave to his wife, and uh, the two will be one flesh, that's sexual intimacy. And he says of Adam and Eve, they were naked and they weren't ashamed. And of course, in that Genesis passage also, God gives Adam and Eve the, a, a mandate to, to multiply, to be fruitful, to, to have babies and, and fill the earth. And so God made sex. He made it good. But when, you know, when we jump over to chapter three in Genesis, sin comes into the world. Sin, in, I mean, sinners, sin enters every aspect of creation to include this idea of sex. And that really is the beginning of sexual immorality. What is sexual immorality at its base? It's selfishness. It's selfishness. I, I, would, I would offer to you that at the root of every sin that we commit is this idea of I'm going to satisfy myself. I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to make myself happy. I'm going to make myself feel good. And so from, from the gamut of Pornography to masturbation to all the ways that adultery can manifest itself in our culture. Sexual immorality says, I, I want to be God. I am God. I'm going to decide what I want to do. No one is going to tell me what I can't do. 
And that's why I say we live in a pornea culture. This is, this is the image that we should have in regards to sexual immorality. If God is the creator of the world, and Genesis is true in that God created sex as this, this bonding of a man and a woman for their, for their own spiritual, physical, and, and soulish connection, but also to fulfill a purpose in God to, to fill the earth, then God controls its design. I would tell you, I, I, one pastor has likened um, the, God's good creation of sex to an appetizer. Sex is an appetizer. Um, you go to a restaurant. Larissa and I went to Southside uh, over in Kingtown. It's like this, uh, you know, it's a... Uh, a southern cuisine, you know, like upscale southern cuisine. We got some fried green tomatoes. Delicious. All right. So you can have two perspectives on appetizers. Either you can, like, get this fat, greasy, cheesy appetizer that's going to fill you up, and you don't even want your food when, you're, when your entree gets there. Or you can have the perspective, my entree, my, my appetizer is going to whet my appetite for the real meal. And so sex, sex is intended to be... A good for us in that it whets our appetite, it, it, it increases our desires really for something that this world in its physical nature can never um, fully satisfy. Sex prepares us for the heavenly nature of our intimacy with God in eternity. But what we do is we, we have a selfish view of sex. And if, of course, that gives us sexual Immorality. All right, I'm going to get off that horse. The next word is impurity. I'm going to keep rolling through these a little bit faster now that I've got off sex, right? <laughs> Sexual immorality. Next word is impurity. Impurity is, is simply moral uncleanness. Moral uncleanness in any fashion. It's any kind of impure practice or behavior sexually. The next one is passion. This denotes a shameful passion which leads to sexual excesses. I would lump things like homosexuality into this idea of passion. The next would be evil desire. It's the Greek word epithemia. These are the longings of your heart. This is where we get the word lust. This means um, not just that you have bad desires, but you have over desires. It's over desiring for things. And this word is all over the New Testament. If you were with us um, last year as we, uh, we recently launched, we were studying the book of Galatians and several times we saw this, this word epithemia show up. And it really is this, this connotation of, of you wanting not just uh, or desiring not just evil stuff of bad stuff, but you over desiring even good stuff. And, the, and there's two ways that we over-desire for stuff. We can over-desire for people, relationships, and what we should be getting out of those relationships. And sometimes we can over-desire just the stuff that we have. We just want it too much. And when you over-desire for something, you make a good thing a God thing. You, in first, you, you end up idolizing it. And then that leads us into this idea of, of covetousness and idolatry. And I think it's, it's rightly that Paul lists this last in this, in this first list, because I think the idea of covetousness and idolatry is pervasive in all of these sins that he's suggested here. Covetousness is greed. It's just greed or greediness. And then idolatry is, is when you elevate the worship of something or someone above your worship of God. 
And so underlying all of these sins from the sexual sin all the way to our evil desires is this idea of pornog- uh, of, uh, of, of covetousness leading to idolatry. And Paul is linking these together specifically because of the common thought that greed, our greed of wanting something, of wanting more, can actually lead a person to become, to become your own God. And so let's dive into idolatry a little bit. When you think of idolatry, you got to go all the way back to Exodus 20, God given the, the Ten Commandments. The first two of the Ten Commandments deal with idolatry. Exodus 21, Paul, uh, uh, Moses is writing, uh, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. You'll have no other God but me. And then he continues in verse 2, um, don't make any craven image, not of stone, not of wood. Don't make anything that you think represents me or seemingly looks like me. God is all about his glory. He doesn't want anything, any trite thing representing him because God is, is God. And so I think, you know, th- th- as we read Genesis, we learn that God made us to be worshipers and we'll either worship God or we'll, we'll make something to worship. That's like God. We'll either depend on God and what he provides or we'll make something and we'll depend on that and we'll make it God. And so he's saying here that our, our lives tend to idolatry. We we want to get meaning purpose, significance from something. And if we don't make it the one true God, we'll make it either something or someone and we'll worship them as God. And then in this, uh, here's a, a good way to think of idolatry. Idolatry is this. It's anything in my life where I say, Lord, I trust you, but Lord, I trust you, but I have to have this. If you ever said that, then those are idolatrous thoughts. You are elevating your need for something or someone over your need, your true need for God. Moving on to this idea of, of coveting, I, I want you to, to see coveting is not just wanting bad stuff. It's, it's wanting anything, really. And, and it's like over, over wanting it. It's like lust of the eyes that we see in John, First uh, John chapter 2, 15. Coveting is the thing that you want that you think will complete you. It'll make you happy. It'll satisfy you. It'll help you overcome the burden of your mundane life. That's what coveting is. And this is why marketing is so, I mean, it's so key. Those marketers, they've got us tapped. They know us well. And they put things in front of us that they know. Not, not as, it's not just that we want them, but they, give, they put this suggestive cell in front of us that says, it's not that you just need to have, you, I mean, it's not this thing, but it's, this is the best thing. This is better for you than the thing that you have. Think about all the things that marketing has suggested to you. Man, I need a new one of those because that one is a lot better than mine. And the one you got is working perfectly fine. You know, iPhone, toaster, oven, car, clothes, pocketbook. Did I cover them all? Here's an example growing up for me. Uh, you know, when I was in elementary school, y'all remember way back to elementary school. Um, when I was little, the thing to have, the thing that you had to have to be cool was a bike. And I, I grew up in a lower middle class family, probably low, just poor, 
just poor. All right, so having a bike was special because, I mean, we rode all, back then, you could just, you never could go in the house. You always had to be outside, and we were riding all over the place. I didn't have a bike for half of my life, and so when my parents bought me a bike, I think it was yellow, if you can believe that. I mean, my brother and I, we had a ball, and we were, we were cool because we had our bikes, right? Then you get to middle school. We used to call it junior high school back then. Um, designer jeans. Y'all remember designer jeans? I don't even know what they were called, like guess and stuff like that. Um, when I was in high school, this, this is what made you cool. A members-only jacket. Anybody remember that? Members-only jacket. And uh, by 11th or 12th grade, it was a car. I mean, having a car was, was kind of special. I mean, you were like, cool. Um, for some people, it was having a girlfriend. Having a girlfriend meant you were cool. People thought you were something. I mean, did you, did you, were you ready to have a girlfriend? No, I wasn't ready. I didn't need to, really need a girl. I just had one because it was the cool thing to, it was, co- it was cool to have a girlfriend or a boyfriend. <laughs> Coveting says, you need this to complete you. And many of us, uh, you know, many of us, again, are trying to get meaning and importance from stuff or from people. I would say, you know, we live in D.C., and uh, it's all around us that people come here to get these high-paying jobs, and they work their butts off. Um, and this is a form, form of coveting. Somebody coined the phrase success panic. Success panic is, is having everything that you've ever wanted, but it's still not being enough. And I would, I would say that pervades our culture. And the, the warning from Paul is uh, rid your life of that, but also shield yourself from it because it's all around you. We get the second list in verse 8. I've got I to speed up. Now, uh, but now you must put them all away, speaking of our sins, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. He gives us another list of, of sins, and these are all verbal type sins. Verbal from the perspective of we say them, but they also rec- uh, represent what's coming from our heart. Anger is the word for vengeance. It's just, this is like somebody hurts you and you are dead. I mean, you're like, I'm going to try and hurt them back because they hurt me. There is a, you know, there's a righteous kind of anger. If you're, I mean, you're thinking of the Bible says, be, be angry and sin not. But I would, I would just tell you, most of y'all have never experienced righteous anger. None of you. Probably none of us. Because when we get angry, we're angry because we don't get our way or our expectation hasn't been met. That's why we get angry. And then we lash out. Wrath is losing your temper. It's flying off the handle. Malice is the intention or desire of your heart to do evil. I'm intending to do harm to somebody. Slander is talking about someone with a purpose of defaming their character. And then obscene talk is coarse language. I like to say it's like cursing like a sailor. All you, all you Navy guys in the room. I don't know. Why don't they say cursing like a soldier or cursing like an airman? I don't think airmen can even cut. They, they don't even cuss, do they? But this is, I mean, cur- this is a common vernacular, right? Cursing like a sailor. Y'all sailors must be bad people. Scott, what's up with that? Y'all are just bad people. Even y'all that work near the Navy. Nick and Amy, y'all are just bad. I'll just stop it. Paul said stop it. Put that to death. This is what we should be asking ourselves. Where does all this anger come from? You know, I always think, man, Lord, if you didn't put all these people around me, I wouldn't have these problems. <laughs> it's all these people making me get mad. It's my kids that did it. It's, it's, uh, it's the lawnmower that's not working. It's my car that, you know, 
ran out of gas miraculously on the, on the interstate. It's all these things around me that are giving me all these problems. This is what James uh, chapter 4, verse 1 says. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? The optimum phrase is within you. James is saying you are your own problem. The problem is you. Here's the, here's the I think, the brunt of the problem. We, we put expectations on, on people. We want them to act a certain way. We want them to say certain things. And honestly, we want them to, to conform in every way to who we want them to be. We want them to be perfect. And I tell you, to want somebody to conform every way that you need them to conform and want them to be perfect, you're asking them to be God. And they, they can't fulfill your expectation like that. And so part of your anger is, is you projecting something that a person, I mean, you can't, they can't fulfill all the ways that, they, that you need and want them to fulfill. And you're manifesting anger outside of that. And, and I'll tell you, we spouses and those close friends that you have, we do this to our friends and to our spouses all the time. And this is one of the ways that we idolize people. When you idolize people, they'll inevitably let you down. Your idols never live up to uh, the, the hype that we, that we expect of them. They're always going to let you down. And our, our manifestation is we get mad. Let me keep going. Paul concludes this list in verse 9. He says, don't lie. Don't lie to each other. And what he's saying here is this, this is not all about you. Because when you lie, you're including somebody else. In fact, this is, he says he's saying the sin in your life, you got to put it to death because it's not just about you. There's a communal aspect. It's a community aspect in its effect when you sin in these ways. We lie in three ways. At least I lie in three ways. There's, there's, there's the outright lie. That's when you're deliberately trying to deceive someone. Right? Y'all acting like you don't lie. The second way is we exaggerate. You're, you're, you're likely trying to gain significance from other people when you exaggerate. And ex- I mean, why do, why do we do that? Um, why do we embellish a story to make it? I mean, you know, especially all of us who communicate with people. The, the, the tendency is, I'm, well, I'm going to like add a little bit there and, you know, boost this up so that people will laugh or, you know, uh, agree with me a little bit or make myself look good. That's what exaggerating is. And then the third way we lie is, is simply by holding back the truth. And if you hold back the truth, um, you don't want to be rejected. You're trying to get that other person to, to like you a little bit more. And here's the, here's the deal on holding back the truth. What you're doing is you're hoping that that person's affirmation of you, you're really saying that person's affirmation of you is more important than God's affirmation of you. You're putting more stake in what that person thinks of you than what God has already said about you in terms of your identity. And we do these all the time. And Paul says, put these to death. Chances are you saw yourself in one of these one of these lists somewhere. And Paul is saying the Bible is saying that we should aggressively put these to death. We should be killing sin. All right, so that's the first question. The second question is this. Why should, we, why should we do it? Why should we put these sins to death? There's a warning in the text. He gives us a big reason here. And the big reason is 
This stuff brings God's wrath. Verse six says, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. God has promised to judge the world. And Paul is listing these inspired by the Holy Spirit, saying these specific things, not these exclusively, but others involved with it will lead to the wrath of God. What's the wrath of God It's his judgment that will come, perhaps not in this today or even in this life, but it will come as God judges the world at the second coming of Jesus. And here's the thing for you. You don't want to be a participant in the very thing for which God says he's going to judge the world. The second reason is, is, as Paul is listed here, a change has taken place in your life. A change has taken place on the inside of you such that you've experienced the great grace of God. Uh, chapter one, verse 13 says, God has taken you out of the domain, the domain of darkness and brought you into the, the kingdom of his son. He's changed your whole life. He's changed you from the inside out. And so verse seven says, in these two, you once walked when you were living in them. And of all these verses, this is the one that draws me because I see myself in here. I see an opportunity for all of us to preach the gospel to ourselves in this verse. This is how I would do it. I would put my name right here in the midst of this verse. Jeff, you used to walk in all these ways. But Paul says, but now rid yourself of all these things. And so do you do you see yourself in, in all these sins that Paul has listed? Or, or, we, or are you thinking, man, I wish so and so were here. Listen to the pastor right now, because I mean, he just be getting it because that person's got some issues and he needs to be made right with God. Or, or do you do you see any of yourself in the sins that Paul has listed? I think what Paul is getting at is he wants us to see ourselves, not necessarily our neighbor or our spouse or our friend that needs these that needs to put these sins to death more than we do. Paul, Paul is asking you, commanding you, make this personal. This is a great opportunity for us to preach the gospel to ourselves. He continues thirdly in this idea of why should, we, why should we put these sins to death in verses 9 and 10. He says, seeing that you have put, to, put, put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Paul is saying, if you're a Christian... You should be worshiping Jesus. You should serve Jesus. You should live for Jesus. You should live for his glory. He's saying, why would you want to go back and live the life that you were living when God has brought you out of that? The Bible says, put these things to death. This is not the walk that he has you on. He's absolutely changed your walk. Your journey is different. And then fourthly, Paul points out that this is not just about us. That, that even our sin, when we commit our sin, it's not just about us wallowing in it or even being forgiven of it. There's a communal aspect to our sin, and we see this in verse 11. Paul says, here there's not Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and he's in all. And what Paul does here is he gives us four different pairings of uh, religion, relationship, circumstance, circumstances of life. And he's saying these are opposed to each other. But what the gospel does is take these things that are opposed to each other and makes them right. It tears down walls of division. So he's saying your sin 
divides you, divides you away from God. It divides you away from the people that you should be in community with. But Jesus has torn those down by his great gospel and by his grace and enabled those things that are opposed to each other to come together. And so therein, he's saying, we are united around Christ. He is our all in all. Lastly, how do we do it? How do we put off our old self? How do we kill sin? How do we walk this out? I'm going to give you some practical steps before I get to that. Um, what he's not saying is close your eyes, get that, you know, that, that I'm going to get this done face, white knuckle it out. He's not telling us to, um, to, to put our sin away in and of our own strength. We have a part to play, absolutely, in our sanctification process of, of getting close to Jesus. But he's not saying that right here. He's not saying do this in your own strength. What he's reminding us is that we should remind ourselves of the gospel, that when Jesus died, our sin died, our sin was buried with him, and those sins didn't come back up, that God has made us a new man, that as we walk in the light of Christ and what he's done, we walk empowered by his spirit that's able to say no to our sin, not in and of our own strength, although we have a part to play, but in the strength that Christ gives us by his resurrection. And I would secondly say that for those of you who, you know, who just in your mind say, well, you know, one of those was on this list. I mean, it's it's one of my sins and I've just had a hard time tackling it. I I just can't seem to overcome it. Um, A a pastor said to me very, very recently, he said, as we were just talking about sanctification, you know, sometimes sanctification, you uh, got changed in your life can't happen with you just trying to grit it out by yourself. You need the community of, of, of God. You need other people to help you, to walk with you, to pray with you, to keep you accountable, to hold you up. So perhaps you need some help. Perhaps you need professional counseling for an addiction that you might have or something that you just can't overcome. Perhaps you should consider that. All right, so here's a list of four things. These come from Sinclair Ferguson, Ferguson author, theologian, and he's written on this uh, on the Legionnaire blog um, in regards to mortifying sin. I'm going to give you this real, real quickly. He says, learn to admit sin for what it really is. You know, in, in this list, Paul says, he, Paul says sexual immorality. He doesn't say I'm tempted. Okay? He, he calls uh, a spade a spade. He says, I'm, he doesn't say I'm struggling with my thought life, he calls it evil desire, which is idolatry. Call your sin what it is. When you call your sin what it is, you're denying yourself the the ability to to make light of your sin. And it brings the reality of what this is to you, to to the forefront of, of, of your mind. Secondly, he says, See sin for what your sin really is in the presence of God. And uh, in verse six really is what this is talking about. Um, what does verse six says? Is on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. The, the old saints used to say we should bring our sins kicking and screaming to the cross of Christ. Where Jesus has put them to death with his death. And so our sin does not lead to lasting pleasure. 
In fact, our sin grieves God. We have to see our sin as grieving God. Thirdly, recognize the inconsistency of your sin. And here, what Sinclair Ferguson is getting at is we put off the old man and we put on a new man. That's the picture that Paul is giving us here. And new men live new lives. Anything less than that would be a contradiction. God has called us to live a new life. And so he's saying, live the new life in the power that God gives you as a new man. And lastly, he says, put sin to death. And that's what verse 5 says. Refuse it, starve it, reject it. Let's pray. Father, these are hard words for some of our ears. The reality is, however, that if we're in Christ, that we have, if we've trusted in the person and work of Jesus for the salvation of our souls, then you've made provision for us to put to death our sin. And so for all of us in here, Lord God, from, from those who are struggling with something on this list to the person here who, who thinks they're good to go, I pray that you would speak to our hearts even now, that these words of Scripture would uh, just be a refrain that we can reflect on throughout the day and, and be reminded, really be confronted by, by your words that say that we're to be aggressive in our stance against the sin in our life, especially these listed here that Paul says, the wrath of God is coming for these sins. Lord, we thank you that Jesus has come. He's lived a perfect life in our place for our sin. He's done what we couldn't do, gone to the cross and died in our place. We thank you that you don't hold these sins against us if we're in Christ. That if we are in union with you, you've laid, uh, you've laid all these on Jesus as he bore them on the cross. Your wrath is diverted away from us to Jesus. We thank you for that. And so, God, we're asking that you would continue to cleanse us, that you would continue to rid us of, of the sin that plagues us. God, I pray a special prayer for those who are, are, are plagued with just a serious sin, something they can't kick. I pray that you surround them with your great grace. God, that you would lift, your, lift condemnation off of them. God, I, find that they would, I pray that they would find comfort in the community of saints. I pray that you would help them to overcome their sin. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen.